So go ahead and turn to Psalm 130 in your Bible. Psalm 130. If you don't have a Bible, one of our hosts will provide one for you. Just raise your hand and they'll uh, provide a Bible for you. If you don't have a Bible, that's a gift to you. We hope you take it and read it. And you can find Psalm 130 on page 486, 486 in those texts. As you're turning there, I want to ask a question. How do you think you would feel if you were alone on a life raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? Very direct question. How do, how, how do you think you would feel? My guess is you'd feel alone. You'd feel lost, helpless, and driven to a measure of despair. Well, that was the story, part of the story of Louis Zamperini. Maybe you've read the story or read the book or seen the movie Unbroken that follows Louis Zamperini's life. would encourage you to check out that book. I, uh, my wife, Sarah, actually got a chance to meet Zamperini while, uh, while we were at Grace College, and he came to speak. I think at that time he was in his uh, late 80s or early 90s even at the time. And when I started reading the book Unbroken, I enjoyed the book so much that I had a hard time putting it down and was reading it even while I was brushing my teeth. And I don't do that with everything. And, uh, but my wife finally told me, she's like, put the book down, go to bed. But love that book. And it, uh, what the book tracks, uh, Zamperini's life, he was a, a track star at USC, represented the United States in the Olympics in the 1936 Olympics in Germany, and even had a chance to shake the hand of Adolf Hitler. And then in World War II, he ended up on a, a bombing crew in the Pacific, and while his crew was flying over the Pacific Ocean, they were shot down. And Zamperini, along with two other crewmen, were the only survivors. And there they were in a life raft in the middle of the ocean. The, the, with vivid detail, he describes what was going on there. He even felt sharks rubbing up against the raft. Despair, being alone. I think they, the only thing they had that survived was a bar of chocolate and a few cans of water. And only two of those men even survived that. They were eventually picked up by, by a, a Japanese ship and spent the rest of the war in a POW camp. But you should read the rest of the book. But when you think about those feelings that you might have of the lostness, of the despair, of the hopelessness uh, in your life, if you're in the middle of the raft, it, it began uh, to make my mind consider Psalm 130. When the psalmist begins with, Out of the depths I cry to you, because our sin can cause us to have a similar despair. Our sin can drive us to a similar sense of lostness, of, of helplessness, of, of what have I done, of, of I've come to the end of myself and there's no going back. See, when, when our sin drives us away, we feel the utter destruction of our choices. Have you ever felt that as a result of your sin? Guilt? Shame? A dishonor, an embarrassment for your sin? You ever felt a sense of where you don't measure up? You can never confess that. You can never tell anybody maybe your deepest, darkest secrets because if you were to reveal the things going on or the things that you've done, It'd be complete embarrassment. It might feel as if we're in the middle of the ocean, nothing but a life raft, no help. See, several weeks ago when we preached Psalm 44, there the psalmist cries out to God 
and he recognizes that he had, he had not sinned at all to cause his circumstances. There was no direct result. There was no reason for his suffering. And while that is certainly true, it's also true that sometimes the consequences, the destruction of our life is a direct result of sins that we've committed. Sins that lead to destruction, sins that lead to embarrassment, sins that lead to guilt and shame. And we are wrecked because of our sin. So in Psalm 130, the psalmist models a type of prayer of confession in light of his sin. If you're looking there, you'll notice that Psalm 130 under it has a, has a subscription that says, uh, Songs of Ascent. Songs of Ascent. The Songs of Ascent are the Psalms from 120 to 134 that are a different category. These were songs that people would sing on their journey to Jerusalem for various festivals or sacrifices. Think of something like Passover, where the people were going to remember of how God had delivered them in the past, how he had forgiven their sin through the blood of the lamb. He had passed over uh, the door in Egypt. He had, he had redeemed them and brought them out of the land and, and brought them into right relationships. So they would sing... As, these psalms, Psalms 120 through 134, to remind them of their state and the goodness of God. These psalms were a type of pilgrimage playlist uh, that they would sing on their way to Jerusalem. And they would sing these year after year after year to remind themselves of their sinful state, the holiness of God, and the goodness of being forgiven in him. Lorraine Smith is going to come and read Psalm 130 for us this morning. Many of you might know Lorraine. She and her husband Eric have been on our staff in various capacities for a little while, and they both serve as deacons. Lorraine oversees our resource center and is a great host for our church. So if you would please stand as Lorraine reads for us Psalm 130. A song of ascent. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive and the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope, and my soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So I hope just in reading this psalm that we resonate with it immediately. Maybe you felt the depths of your sin. You've experienced the embarrassment of your decisions. You've been found out, whether by the broader public or even just some of your closest friends and family, of some of the things that you were keeping hidden. And oftentimes when we feel the weight of our depravity, it, it leads us to a type of depression where we, we don't even want to get out of bed. 
can barely lift our head off the pillow when we feel so overwhelmed. And for any of us who have or are or will have those feelings of the depths of our depravity today, this psalm has one big idea. Cry out to the Lord. In your sin, cry out to the Lord. And we'll see throughout this, the reason that we cry out is because in the Lord there is forgiveness. But in your sin, cry out to the Lord. This song has four stanzas, four verses that really build off one another. There's kind of a a, a logical flow. First we see that the psalmist cries out in his sin. Then he worships the Lord in light of his forgiveness. And then he waits on the Lord for the fulfillment of all of his promises. And then he hopes in the Lord and invites others to hope in the Lord as well. So we'll follow all four of those verses. So the first verse Cry out to the Lord from the depths of your sin. Cry out to the Lord from the depths of your sin. Verse 1 tells us exactly what we are supposed to do when we've been found out. When we, when we find ourselves and we recognize our sin before God, when we've hit rock bottom, we see this. Verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you. Out of the depths of his despair, out of the utterness of his depravity, he cries out to God, Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. See, the psalmist offers nothing but his cry here. He doesn't excuse. He doesn't explain away. He simply cries out. He doesn't say that these are my circumstances, these are the reasons why I couldn't help myself. He doesn't say the cards were stacked against me, so, you know, I'm just kind of the the result of my circumstances. You know, circumstances might explain various sins or patterns, but they never excuse it. So the psalmist doesn't offer excuses, he simply cries out to the Lord. He acknowledges his sin, he recognizes his wrong. Yet often in our culture and even among many Christian circles, we try to soften sin. We try to soften the depths that, that the psalmist writes of. Because the depths here are not just general suffering. It's, it's pretty evident, I think, that the depths that he's describing here are the depths of the result of his sinful choices, of his sinful life. But the way we talk about sin in our culture is, is kind of reserved for the big mistakes, General sins, easy sins, or we might just call human shortcomings, mistakes, mere failures. But see, when we talk about sin in, in a way like that to soften it, we, we, we have a low view of God and an unrealistic view of ourselves. John Calvin, in his, his great systematic theology, He says, true wisdom, all wisdom begins with a correct understanding of God and a correct understanding of ourselves. So first we need a proper view of God. What is your view of God? Who do you understand him to be? Because it's only in understanding his glory, his character, that we can have a right view of our sin. See, we likely have a low view of sin because we have a low view of God. More than we might admit, we might be tempted to treat God as a type of grandfather in the sky. 
Grandparents might be annoyed with the, with the behavior of their grandchildren, but they, they might be annoyed, but they may not deal with it in a complete disciplinary way. Many of you grandparents have often said one of the glories about being a grandparent is hosting your grandkids for a period of time, enjoying time with them, and then doing what? Sending them home. It didn't take long to have that. And from a discipline standpoint, again, grandparents, you might try to channel it, but you're going to kind of leave a lot of the disciplinary uh, actions to the parents at home. So sometimes if our view of God is that he's nothing other than a grandparent who's moderately annoyed with our behavior, but he won't really deal with it, well, then we have a very low view of God. We have a very low view of his character and his holiness. We, we need to have an experience like Isaiah had in Isaiah 6. Many of you might know this, and, and we can't quote this text too often. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood two seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and, and, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, Isaiah had beheld the Lord, and he was overwhelmed because of his sin. Isaiah's high view of God caused a humble view of himself. We have a similar scene in Revelation chapter 1 where John sees the Lord and John writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Another scene in the Gospels is when Jesus calls Peter to be one of his disciples. Peter, through a set of circumstances, recognizes that there's something about Jesus. That he is either God or he's a man of God. And, and Peter falls at his feet. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. All wisdom begins with a right view of God. And part of the reason we have a low view of sin is because we have a misunderstanding, a wrong view of God. Brothers and sisters... Who is God? Do you see him as amazingly glorious? Magnificently holy? Gloriously good? Because a right understanding of God is how we have a right understanding of ourselves. And Calvin says that's the second way to have true wisdom. A proper view of ourselves. The psalmist is in the depths because of his sin. He recognizes that his sin separates him from a holy God. And, and, and all sin drives us from the presence of God. And this is true ever since the first sin. In Genesis chapter 3, we, we see, well, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God created Adam and Eve perfectly good to have relationship with God. But on their own, they rebelled against God and made themselves out to be God. And, and, and they, they went their own way. They charted their own path. And that led to terrible, destructive consequences. After their sin, Genesis 3 says that, that God came to walk with the man and the woman in the cool of the day. And the nets 
Then the next sentence, for me, is one of the most devastating sentences in all the Bible. It says this, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. God comes to walk with Adam and Eve, but because of their sin, they reject his presence and hide from him. See, friends, sins are, <laughs> sinful nature is not just mere mistakes, shortcomings. It's offenses before a holy God in thought, word, and deed. Everything to the innermost parts of our motivations and actions. It drives us away from God. We hide from God because of our sin. Are you hiding today from the Lord? See, so when the psalmist sings, out of the depths I cry to you, he recognizes who God is and who he is. He, he has nothing to offer the Lord. He has a right understanding of the holiness of God and, and the sinfulness of his own life. So he cries to the Lord from the depths. Lord, hear my pleas for mercy. Jonah prays a similar prayer from the, from the belly of the fish. Rather than walking with God, he, he ran away from God and he tried to find deliverance and he ended up in the ocean. And he says, out, I called to you out of my distress. And you may feel like you're running from God or hiding from him and, and be reluctant to want to confess the deepest, darkest sins that only you and the Lord know about. See, you might be reluctant to confess those sins, but it's necessary to confess those sins. See, two things happen simultaneously when we confess our sins to the Lord and to somebody else. First, you feel pain. You feel pain. It is not easy to talk about difficult things. It is not easy to talk about things that embarrass us. It is tough. It is hard. It is revealing. It is undoing to ourselves. And yet we must talk about it. Because the second thing that we feel in the middle of that is relief. We feel pain and we feel relief. It is actually good to tell somebody what's going on. When we bring Sin to the light. There is a sense of finally somebody else knows. Part of the challenge of our sin is the, is the act of hiding it. See, nobody wants to go under the surgeon's scalpel. When, when a surgeon cuts a patient, that hurts. If it wasn't for numbing purposes, we would feel every aspect of what that is. But we know that in the surgery, that is where true change comes. Brothers and sisters, if you're hiding from the Lord in your sin, cry out to the Lord. Confess your sins. Plead for mercy. That's what we do when we're, when we're undone. We come, we confess, we cry. And that cry then leads to worship. We see this in the next, uh, in verse, in the next verses, three and four. So we worship the Lord who forgives. We have to ask ourselves, on what basis do we cry? We, we cry out to God in the midst of our sin on the basis that he will forgive us, in the confidence that he will restore us. Look at verse 3. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? 
But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. See, verses 1 and 2 are a type of confession of sin. It's, it's a way of us uh, bringing to light that's what, that what we're hiding. But verses 3 and 4 are a type of assurance of pardon. He comes to the Lord knowing that he will be forgiven. That question is a rhetorical question. If you were to mark iniquity, that is to hold against or, or to, to keep a list of. If you were to mark iniquity, who could stand? And the obvious answer is no one. No one could stand before the Lord in their own sin. See, we might be reminded of some important passages in the New Testament that talk about the depravity of man, that talk about our sinful state. In Romans chapter 2, Paul goes through this list of Old Testament passages, and one of the ones he quotes is this. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They are, have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. See, what the psalmist is saying when he says, if you were to mark iniquities, he's not trying to say that the Lord ignores sin. He's not trying to say that the Lord isn't aware of sin or he just simply passes over it, no big deal. On our family vacation recently, one of our family members thought it would be a good idea to put together a game called Who Said It? What this family member did was to go through various family members' social media accounts over the last decade or so. And he put that on the screen and we had to vote Who Said It? A terrifying game, as you might imagine. <laughs> but it was all in good fun, and we had some fun family banter over it. But I also thought right in the moment, God does not need my social media account to know the foolishness of my own heart. At the end of time, God will not, ha well, I mean, he could, but he will not have to put up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or whatever uh, other thing is out there. And hold it before us because he knows every thought we didn't post. He knows every motivation we didn't put forward. He knows every secret thing we did in the dark. So who could stand before God if he were to mark iniquity? No one. But he confesses, the psalmist confesses, knowing he will be forgiven. Look at verse 4. If you could stand, no one, or if you would have marked iniquity, no one could stand. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. See, God does not ignore sin. He does not overlook sin. He deals with sin. He forgives the repentant sinner. On what basis, though? On what basis? He deals with sin. He forgives the repentant sinner, the one who turns from their sin to the basis of a sacrifice. Through the basis of a sacrifice. See, throughout history, the genuine people of God have expressed their faith in him through sacrifices and through cleansing. The people brought sacrifices through the temple system so that wrath would come on the sacrifice and not on the sinner. 
So the, the psalmist could confess his sin and know that he would be forgiven because his offering would be put before the Lord. It would go on the sacrifice so he could confess his sin. Remember that these are songs of ascent. They're going to the temple to, to practice the sacrificial system. And year after year after year, they bring their sacrifice. Year after year after year, they bring their sin. They confess it. They ascend that hill year after year after year. But brothers and sisters, on this side of the cross, we don't sing these songs in our own pilgrimage upward. We sing these songs because of the one who has ascended the hill for us. In light of the perfect sacrifice of Christ, the once for all delivered for, for, for all sin, past, present, future. That every sacrifice was merely a shadow of the perfect sacrifice, the one in Christ. So that in Christ, God forgives every repentant sinner because Jesus took your place on the cross. He took your sin and became it so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that forgiveness that we receive through repentance, repentance of sin and faith in Jesus should lead to amazing, passionate worship. So we cry out to the, to the Lord in our sin, but we then worship the Lord who forgives our sin. Revelation chapter 5 says, worthy is the lamb who was slain. The, the, the lamb is worthy because the lamb was slain and I wasn't. We worship the Lord who forgives. And see, understanding this connection between forgiveness and worship is essential. If you think you come to worship to get forgiveness, you have a misunderstanding of the gospel. If you think you come in here to get some kind of spiritual bonus points, I might raise my hand, I might make it look genuine, I might try to talk myself into it because I know I'm coming in here to somehow earn some measure of righteousness. I'm, I'm kind of getting grace accredited to my account through something good that I'm doing. I come to worship to get forgiveness. That's self-centered worship. It's all about you. Because worship is not something, something I come to to get Forgiveness. I worship in light of being forgiven. Being forgiven in Christ is what leads to worship. See, the gospel is not what you have done for God. It is what God has done for you. And that leads to awe-inspiring, passionate worship and devotion. All throughout the Bible, true worshipers have always responded to God's salvation to give thanks. So if you think you can save yourself, or if you think you're beyond the pale of saving, you have a very low view of God. God is not glorious to you. But if you recognize that you cannot save yourself, it is only through Christ that you can be saved. It is only through his might and power that you can be saved. Well, then that should lead to thanksgiving, to praise, because of what Christ has done for us. We cry out in our sin, we worship when we've been forgiven, and that causes us then to wait. The next verse, verses are about waiting for the Lord. Wait for the Lord who will fulfill his promises. Wait for the Lord who will fulfill his promises. Look at verse 5. 
He says, I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. This verse is repetitive and it doubles down on one another. First he says, I wait. Then later he says, my soul waits. His innermost being is waiting on the Lord. Now we need to ask, what's he waiting on? Well, the psalmist could be waiting on a, a measure of like what the, a declaration of forgiveness that he might receive from the, from the priest or the prophet there at the temple. But that seems unlikely because he's so confident that he will be forgiven upon his confession. What seems more likely is that he's waiting on the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He, he gets a taste of redemption through his confession in faith. And now he wants the fulfillment of the whole thing. We talk often about uh, the already and not yet themes that are in the scripture, that there's a sense of which there, that things are true now, that we are saved now, and yet we're awaiting a complete and full salvation. Romans 8, uh, 30 gives us this golden chain of redemption where we see things both past, present, and future. And it, it says this, and those whom he predestined, that is something that took place in the past, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. That's in the moment. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's in the future. And for those of us who trust in Christ, who have been saved from their sins, we often want the whole thing now. And yet we wait. The psalmist says, more than the watchman for the morning. See, that watchman there, the watchman had a very important job. You know, in uh, ancient societies prior to things like sonar or, you know, some kind of detector that would detect a, an enemy coming, the watchman would have been the one who stayed awake all night to make sure that there was no invading force on the city. And he would have had to sound the alarm if there was some kind of enemy who was coming. So, but, so the watchman longs for the morning. Why? Because there's peace. The, the, the watchman longs for the morning be, because he knows that there's not going to be battle tonight. Not on my watch. Just imagine that, that watchman on the city gate, on the, on the top of the city, and he starts to see just the smallest glimmer of dawn. And, he's, and in his mind, he's, he's going, oh, peace, security. And see, with eager expectation, God's people wait the redemption of all of our souls, the complete and total salvation. We wait for the Lord who fulfills his promises. Just this week in our sermon uh, prep meeting, we, you know, a lot of us get together on Wednesday. So me and other staff or some of our elders or people that we invite in, we come and talk about the text on Wednesday mornings. It's a great, my favorite meeting of the week. And in this meeting, one of our elders who was part of that, who's familiar with the fire department, he had a story. He said there was a, a rookie firefighter. And he came, it was his first night there in the house, and uh, he put his pajamas on before bedtime. And the captain said, what are you doing? He says, I'm going to bed. Got my PJs on. The captain said, look around at everybody else here. He says, everybody else will sleep in their uniform tonight. Some even with their boots on. So that when the alarm sounds, they're ready. Friend, are you tempted to put your PJs on right now? You said, I've waited long enough for the fulfillment of Christ's kingdom. Could it come now? See, with, with solidarity with the psalmist, we long for the morning. We long for the day of redemption. We long for the day of renewal like the watchman longs for the morning. 
So friend, don't give up. Sleep with your uniform on. Be prepared. Know that one day God will fulfill all of his promises. You might feel as if right now, you know, I've been walking with Jesus for a long time. I should be more mature. I should sin less. There's a day coming, brothers and sisters, when you no longer even need to repent of your sin. There'll be no need of confession because in that glorified state, we will be perfect before the Lord, clothed in his righteousness. Long for that day, await that day with patience. So we cry out in our sin, we worship when we've been forgiven, we wait for the Lord to fulfill all of his promises, and then finally we hope, and we invite others to hope along with us. We hope in the Lord who will redeem in full. The psalmist moves from this personal prayer of repentance to a corporate invitation of trust. He says, oh Israel, hope in the Lord. That is to, to trust, to believe, to have faith. For with the Lord is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. See, it only makes sense that those who have been forgiven would declare, how, declare to others how to be forgiven as well. The old adage is that evangelism is merely one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. See, I'm reminded of the story of the Samaritan woman. Samaritan woman in John 4 comes in the middle of the day to get water. Jesus begins to talk with her. And over the course of this conversation, Jesus uh, tells her that he knows that she's not lived a perfect life, that she's had many husbands, that she's lived a, a, a licentious life, a, an immoral life. And the woman is undone. She, do, she doesn't respond in two ways. She doesn't respond first with excusing. She doesn't say, well, I've just lived a difficult life. I couldn't help myself. She also doesn't, she doesn't uh, um, respond with complete despair, like running away from the presence of the Lord. No, she goes and she tells in John 4, she says, come and see the man who told me everything I've ever done. In a later verse in John 4, it says, many Samaritans believed because of the woman's testimony. Let me talk first to Christians. Christian friend, does your evangelism come out of the joy of knowing that you're forgiven? Or is it something that you merely add on to life? See, for us to have a culture of evangelism in our church where we just share the gospel naturally with people that we come into contact with, that, that first, has, we have to treasure the gospel. We have to know that we've been forgiven. We have to be willing to say, I'm not necessarily better than you. I, I, I'm not necessarily, I, I don't have all these things together. We can't be necessarily judgmental against the culture. We have to be willing to say, I've been forgiven in Christ. This is who I was. This is who Christ has made me. This is the glory of knowing him. And we declare it for others. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, But I receive mercy so that in me as the foremost of sinners, Christ might display his perfect patience. So that in me as the foremost, God might be glorified. Do you see yourself still as the foremost of sinners? Not that God hasn't transformed you, not that God hasn't changed you, but, but that you've never moved on from the gospel of Jesus, that your hope is in Christ who redeems in full. 
and we share in light of that good news. Now to those who might be listening or those who are here and have not yet responded to the offer of the gospel. Maybe you're so convicted over your sin that you feel like Jesus would never accept you. But look at these final verses. With him, with the Lord, there is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So you might be tempted to say, yeah, some of my sins I, I can understand God forgiving, but not all. Not the bad ones. But see, brothers and sisters, Christ did not die on that cross so that sin, so that redemption uh, is, is only kind of dealt with. That forgiveness is only a little bit available and therefore it has to be rationed out little by little in bits and pieces. So there's some sins that Christ's blood covers and there's other sins Christ's blood doesn't. Christ's blood covers every and all sin, even the ones that you're so embarrassed to not mention to your closest friend. With him there is plentiful redemption if you would just but come. The invitation is to hope in the Lord who redeems not impartial but in full. For there is plentiful redemption. In your sin, cry out to God. Worship Him. Wait for Him. Hope in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that you are matchless, glorious, wonderful. We pray, God, that you would elevate our view of you, that we might behold your glory in a capacity that would overwhelm us and humble us. We pray, Lord, that you would draw us to repentance, that we might experience a reconciled relationship with you, that we would never move on from the glory that is in the good news of the gospel to know that we have been forgiven not because of what we have done, because we could never stand if you would mark our sin, but upon our trust in you and because of what you have done for us in Christ to receive us, to reconcile us, and to make us new. For there we know that with the Lord is steadfast love. God, I pray that you would make us the kind of people who enjoy you because you have been so merciful and kind and loving. That we might cry out, never run away, but always run toward you. Because you will redeem us of all our iniquities. In Christ's name, amen.